Hey, don't we need to do the intro to Papa's podcast? Oh yeah, I forgot. Isn't that the boring one? No, that's the theology one. It's the boring theology podcast. <laughs> that's so stupid. Welcome to the Boring Theology Podcast, where we will be digging our way through the Bible from a Reformed confessional perspective. I'm your host, Michael Esch, and welcome to the fourth installment of the Bible Timeline series. Today we'll be examining the Exodus. This is where the Egyptians have um, enslaved God's people, and now they are going to exit out of Egypt, and they're going to spend 40 years in the desert. In the series, this is again is our fourth installment. So we've already covered the beginning, God's creation, his uh, the fall of man, the patriarchs that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then their 12 sons. We talked about how the 12 the 11 or I guess it was 10 sons at the time sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph went into Egypt, became in charge, and then during a famine, the rest of uh, the Israelites came down into Egypt, and Joseph saved them. And today we're going to talk about how after 400 years, they become enslaved people, and they exit out of Egypt. The next week, we'll be talking about uh, their time in Canaan and the Judges. From there, the people ask for a king. God gives them a king. We call this the early kingdom. Um, After a a couple kings are set up, there is a split in Israel, and there becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This time period is considered the divided kingdom. From there, the northern kingdom will rebel, and the southern kingdom will eventually rebel too. And God will exile the Israelites out of Egypt. Then they will return. And during this time, the prophets are proclaiming to God's people that they will be exiled. And they will talk about their return. And they will also be prophesying a new covenant, um, the Messiah that's to come and to make all things right. And that he would save the world, all people groups. And so then there's 400 years of silence after they return and build up the second temple, 400 years of silence. And Jesus comes and he lives his life. He lives a perfect life. He's a hundred percent man, a hundred percent God. He is then crucified. He dies. They bury him three days later. He resurrection, he resurrects. And then he returns for 40 days and walks among the people establishing his church. Then that gets us to the next section where they talked about the early church. This is after Christ ascends. And now that begins at Pentecost. And we'll talk through that. That's in the book of Acts. today, And then we'll get into the church today, and which will lead us then to the return, judgment, and reign of Christ. Uh, and then that will wrap up our whole Bible timeline series. And I look forward to uh, what we will be getting into after that. I've been receiving a lot of questions. So I have a lot of um, Monday podcasts uh, 
filled out for the next couple of weeks. I think it's actually a two two months now uh, worth of material. So that will be uh, there will be a lot of fun getting into some of those different topics. But today we have uh, the Exodus. Uh, the book of Exodus begins where the book of Genesis ends. So the Israelites have been in been in um, Egypt now for 400 years. Now, some people talk about whether that was a literal 400 years or if that was a marker for four generations. The Bible isn't um, particularly clear on that. Uh, the thing that makes it um, unclear is actually a New Testament writing from Paul's letters where he talks about them being in, uh, it talks about a time from um, Abraham to when Moses receives the commandments. And the timeline that Paul gives in the New Testament is a little bit different than what the Old Testament is. So they think that the Old Testament might have been um, kind of just a general term of of 400 years or four generations either way they became um they became slaves and they they grew and they were populating they were they were fulfilling the creation mandate that god had given them to multiply and to spread out and they've done that and in egypt they've become a really large people group and so what happens is um, the Egyptian pharaoh is the uh, he is the most evil of evil characters of the Bible so far. Uh, he is a he is he was a literal pharaoh in uh, Egypt. This is a literal story. I think the way that this story is written, it is it is a true story. It happened in history. Uh, Pharaoh says that the Egyptians are growing or that the Israelites are growing too much and too fast. And so he orders them. And this is the first chapter of Exodus, the book of Exodus. He orders them to murder all of the male children. And the way that they were to murder them was to, as they are born, the midwives were to kill them. Or if they were found later, they were going. To, they were to be thrown into the Nile. That's a, a river that runs uh, through Egypt, and uh, it's it's a large river. And they were just to cast these babies, these male babies, into the river. It was a horrendous uh, act of evil. And as we will see when we get to um, the Canaan and Judges, we will see that. God takes seriously the murder of children. Uh, most of the Bible, when there is utter destruction of a society, it is, it is by large, they have murdered babies on some reason. And the reasons are all different. Sometimes it's for um, sacrificing to a false god. Sometimes it's sacrificing for health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes it is to... Um, push out a people group. We see that here with Pharaoh. In the New Testament, we'll see a the murdering of, of children from Herod because he wants to kill off the Messiah, 
that was prophesied to come. And uh, God takes these seriously and acts harsh judgments to them. And when I say harsh judgments, I don't mean that they are unjust judgments. God's justice is always just, and it is always appropriate. And so as we see here, God's going to take uh, the murder of these children extremely seriously. But one of these children is going to be saved. Um, Moses is born to a Israelite mother. Um, he is from the tribe of Levites. And he, uh, and, and what that means is Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was named Levi. Moses is a descendant, probably the fourth or fifth generation of Levi. So that means he was his great, 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 great grandfather. And so what she does is she sticks him in a basket and she puts him in the Nile, but she puts him in the basket. And so he's floating down the river, but his mother places him in just a way that Pharaoh's wives and servants will see him. And I, and they collect him. So Pharaoh's family collects him, finds him, and they don't murder him. They have a heart to care for this baby boy. And so Moses gets raised in Pharaoh's household. And as he's being raised, he's raised as an Egyptian. But one day, we don't we don't have a lot of uh, that history. I know there's a, a movie out there that shows a little bit a little bit more of, of his childhood there. They take some creative um, creative liberties there with that one. But in, in the scripture, it just kind of jumps up to when um, Moses is older. We don't know how much older. We just know that um, he's an adult now. And, and he sees the Egyptians um, enslaving the Israelites. And Moses knows that he's an Israelite. We don't know how he knows that, if it is, it's so much a physical difference or if he was raised differently or if he was constantly told he was an Israelite. We don't, we don't know that for sure. But we do know that he knows he's an Israelite and um, that he's being treated a lot differently than the rest of them. He sees an Egyptian uh, slave master um, beating one of the Israelites. And so Moses goes over and murders him. And as he he murders him, he he hides the body and he, he tries to cover it up. But when uh, Moses returns, the Israelites call him out for being a murderer. And from that uh, accusation of them calling him a murderer, which he was. I mean, he murdered an Egyptian and they, they're calling him out for his sin. Um, Pharaoh finds out and he um, orders that Moses be killed. So Moses flees and he runs away and he ends up going uh, far out and joins um, a flock of, of people and actually becomes a shepherd. And out of... Um, this group, he ends up um, finding somebody to marry, and he marries out there. But he's also um, shepherding. And what we find is um, at the age of, of 40, one time as he's shepherding, that he has this interacting interaction with a burning bush. And the burning bush is, is, is God's voice, his presence in the Old Testament. 
And we see that God calls Moses out from hiding as a shepherd and tells him to sends him back to Egypt to um, save the Israelites. We see here that it, Moses is hesitant to do this, that he was not a confident, bold leader at this point. But God encourages him, and this is where we first hear that God calls himself the great I am. That means that God has always been, he is, and will always be God, and he never changes. We, the, the term for never changes in a, in a theological standpoint is called immutability. God does not change. And so he titles himself with this title, I am. And in this, um, Moses goes uh, goes back to Egypt and demands that p- the people are let go. Now, what's interesting here is that we know that uh, Moses had something wrong with his speech. He either had a stutter or or something was going on with his speech that made him not uh, a great public speaker. Now, he still does publicly speak, but Aaron, his brother does a lot of the speaking for him. Um, during uh, When he demands that the people are let go, Pharaoh refuses. And, and then there's this back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh. Now, w- at the time of the burning bush, God had told Moses that Pharaoh would, that, that God would harden Pharaoh's heart and that he would reject the people leaving and yet God would still save the people. Now then when we go into the story, we see the the Moses as he's writing the story says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. As these plagues are coming, it's it, it continuously says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. But then it, it, and then in the story it also says later on it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's like this mixture of of Pharaoh being responsible for the sin that he is committing, and yet also simultaneously, God is sovereign over everything that is happening. And there, we see a tension here in this story, and and theologians have tried to work this out, um, but there is this tension here. And so if you if you ever hear somebody preaching this and they're acting like there's no tension here, they're not be, really being faithful to the text because. There is a tension between God's sovereignty and man's freedom or choice in the matter. Uh, what what we would say in a, a a correct teaching of this would say that man is free, but God is most free. So where we are responsible for our sin, God is also responsible for overseeing everything that's all been created. Now, we also know that God is not the author of sin, so God can never be responsible for the sin. In a theological term, we would say that that sin happens secondarily from God, that man chooses it, but it's not outside God's ordained plan for, for creation or outside of the covenant of redemption. These are things that are in God's control. And we actually see that being exhibited here in these um, plagues, because the plagues in Scripture says that it was to demonstrate to Pharaoh and to um, the gods of the Egyptians that God was sovereign over all things. So these plagues are going to be a mixture of of 
plagues that are demonstrating God's sovereignty over Pharaoh and over the gods of the Egyptians. So there's mixtures here, and and theologians also disagree. They have arguments and disagreements on on which um, plagues were representative of a god or of something that was valuable to the Egyptian culture or directly to Pharaoh. But one thing I, I think that is very significant is the first and last plague. The first plague was the river turning to blood, the um, river that Pharaoh had commanded all of these Israelite children to be thrown into, to be cast into. Uh, that river turns to blood. In the last uh, plague, we see that God comes down and takes the firstborn of all children that are not covered with the blood of the lamb. Um, God issues out this last plague, and he gives the people, he gives everybody the opportunity to, to be saved. He says that if you take an unblemished lamb, you sacrifice it, you eat it, you take the blood from that lamb and put it on your doorpost, and then you eat um, what they will later call a Passover meal, then then you would be saved. And you just had to do this to be saved. It was an act of faith in God. It was a faith in the blood of the sacrifice, which is a foreshadowing, or we would say that this is typological of Christ, that we as Christians and, and we as the people of God, God's covenant people, we put our faith in Christ's blood and his atoning work, his sacrifice. It was that our sins require punishment. Our God is just, and yet he's also merciful. But his mercy doesn't trump his justice. There's always going to be justice. So we would say that an atonement is necessary to pay the price for our sin. And here in the Passover is symbolically saying that Christ is going to be our, our, our Passover lamb. He, in the future, this is pointing to the Messiah that's coming, that his blood will be shed and that, and that we will take his blood and put that over us and we will be justified. Justice was enacted. Christ took all of our sin, but yet then we were also given mercy because we deserved that punishment, but Christ stood in for us. And so here we see that being symbolized with the with the lamb. What's interesting is that every year the Israelites are going to remember this Passover um, during a Sabbath holiday. And in the new covenant, we will we will take that and we will observe that in something we do weekly in the communion. So we see the body is broken and the blood is shed and the and the bread and in the wine. But here is the first example, uh, or is the Passover. This is the first one. And Pharaoh rejects doing the Passover and acknowledging God. He has hardened his heart towards God, and God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh rejects it, and Pharaoh's son is part of the group that dies. Now Pharaoh, from this point, takes the Israelites and, and casts them out. He sends them, says, leave. I don't want you to be here anymore. Go. And so they leave. Now Pharaoh then hardens his heart more and then sends his army after the Israelites as they are leaving Egypt. And so we see the parting of the Red Sea and then the Israelites coming through and then uh, Pharaoh's army 
gets swallowed up in the sea and God's people are free. Now, this story of the Exodus, I would highly encourage you to go through and actually read it because I'm kind of just skimming over it because in in this podcast, we got to cover all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So I'm skipping over a lot of stuff and there's a lot of good details in this story that's going to flow through um, the rest of the Bible. God is constantly going to remind the Israelites that he saved them out of Egypt, that it was him, that it was nothing that they had done. They were not a great people group. There was nothing special about them, but that God chose them because he loved them. And that's part of that covenant of redemption, that, that God chose his people group, not because they're special, but because he loves them. And that demonstrates his his love, his attributes of love, his attributes of mercy, his attributes of grace. This this is a, a reason to glorify God. If there was anything found in the Israelites that was special beyond anything else, then, then that would take away from God's uh, glory in this. And so we see the Israelites, soon we're going to find out that the Israelites are are just as evil as the Egyptians. As we get into the desert, we see the Israelites starting to hunger and thirst, and they criticize Moses and God, saying that it would be better for them to have stayed in Egypt. Now, as you're reading this story, you're going to get the sense that of a moral superiority over the Israelites, meaning that you're as you're reading this, I think the author actually intends you to think like this, that you are better than them. That's part of this process. That how could you do this? How could you be a slave in Egypt, witness God doing miraculous things, and yet still rebel against him? How can you complain when God saved you out of slavery? How, how do you have the right to complain about that? And then this gives us this moral superiority, like we are better than them. But as we start to read through the story, we will quickly find that we are just like the Israelites, that we complain when God has provided many things to us. And at one point, Jesus will tell a parable about to a man who says that he wants to return uh, after he died, he wants to return to tell his his brothers and his family that after death is is eternity of heaven or hell, that you will either spend eternity in God's grace or you will spend eternity under his wrath for justice according to your sin. That he wants to return and tell them that. And Jesus responds, why? They have they have what Moses has written to them. So you have these stories. You have this story just as the children of the Israelites that were too young to understand that they were they had been saved out of slavery. It's the same story that they were told, that we're being told right now, that God saved them out of Egypt, that this is what, what God has done, and yet we still sin, and yet we still complain that, that God hasn't done everything that uh, we want Him to do. Um, that we are not satisfied with what God has has given to us. Um, at this point, they come to uh, a a mountain called Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, where the the, the most of the um, Pentateuch, 
we're we're going to spend a significant time in the, this one location. Um, I would say that there's probably more chapters written in the Pentateuch from this location than any of the others in the Pentateuch. But what's interesting here is um, they're going to get the Mosaic covenant from Mount Sinai. So they come to this mountain and God says he wants to dwell with his people. Um, but they are unclean. They are not holy people. They are sinful people, just like we described about their criticizing Moses and God saying that they would rather go into Egypt. So they have some sin that needs to be atoned for. And so in this Mosaic covenant, God's going to create um, ways or means for them to to atone for that that sin. And so God brings Moses up to the mountain and says, I'm going to give you ways and means that I can uh, dwell with my people. And that's going to come from the law. And we're going to get a ceremonial law, a moral law, and a judicial law from um, Mount Sinai. And all three have different reasons and purposes. But before we get to this, um, the law, this is in Exodus chapter 20. Before that, in Exodus 19, it says that God, before he's giving the law, this is what he says. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's saying before he even gives this law, he says, I I am your savior. I saved you. I saved you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. I saved you. I am your savior. And so when he gives this law, I view this as still being part of the covenant of grace. Now the law is typological of Christ and it's foreshadowing Christ, but it's still part of this covenant of grace because nobody in Egypt is saved by following this law. That they they know that they were saved by grace through faith. Now they're going to follow the law in faith. They're going to uphold the law in faith, but they're saved by grace. Nobody here in Egypt is saved by following the law. Now here at the Mount Sinai, as I said before, we are, Moses receives the law in three parts. We have the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. Now, the moral law um, is going to be what is right and wrong for all peoples in all times and all places. So this is in accordance with do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Um, do not commit adultery. These are laws that God gives to his his people in clarifying here in the Mosaic Covenant. But these are moral laws that have been held by people before the Mosaic Covenant and it will be held after the um, Mosaic Covenant has been um, uh, considered obsolete in the New Covenant. So there are things that fade away from the Mosaic Covenant. The moral law is not one of them. 
uh, Christians today still have to, <laughs> it seems silly that I would have to say this, but it, it is something that when you're working through this on a theological standpoint, you do have to um, give the nuances of the different types of laws because there are a group of people called um, antinomists that believe that all of the Mosaic law is done away in the new covenant. And that would include the moral law, which would mean that we can do whatever we want without sinning, which Paul addresses in the New Testament. And it says that there is still sin that can happen in the new covenant, that you can sin and that you need to repent of that sin. And to say what is sin, we have to say what the law is. And the law here is is defined and that Christians are held accountable for is the moral law. Now, I... Um, on the Monday podcast, me and my wife, Kylie Esch, will be getting into um, and kind of unpacking this a little bit further. So I'm going to go through this next part pretty quickly. Uh, but we will get into what laws we have to follow uh, in that podcast uh, in more detail. But in the the next part of them, uh, the laws was the ceremonial law. So this has to do with tabernacle and temple worship. Since we don't have a tabernacle or temple to worship at anymore, uh, these laws are no longer applicable. The next laws are are the judicial laws of the nation of Israel. Jesus in his last command to um, his disciples before he ascends, he says, go therefore to all nations. So now he's saying we're no longer having the nation of of Israel as defined in scripture as this um, country that has been set apart by God for the purposes of God and his covenant of redemption, that these laws are no longer applicable to the nation of Israel and to the rest of the the world as judicial laws. That doesn't mean that they can't be helpful in determining um, how we should run our judicial system, that we can't use the wisdom of that. We see uh, a precedence for that in, in the New Testament. Um, I get in, We get into that a little bit further in, that, in the next podcast. Um, n- I, not so much so that there wouldn't still be questions. So if you, again, if you have some more questions on uh, how God's judicial law or the ceremonial laws, or the moral laws apply to us after Monday's episode, feel free to contact me. And you can contact me through the link I put in the show notes or through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Um, Moving on, after Moses receives the law from God, he comes down and he sees the people. Um, They have created a golden calf and this there's a kind of a little bit of a mixture here where they they call this golden calf is going to be gods but then they also call it god so they also worship it with the name of god the, the name of god is yahweh and they call this golden calf yahweh so now they are deciding that they are going to worship god in a way that is meaningful to them. They are deciding to worship God by their own terms, but not by God's terms, because they've already been given the commandment that they are not to make idols and that idols should not be um, part of their worship. They're told that they're not supposed to be making images of God, that they should not make an image that is representative of God. And yet we see 
the Israelites doing that. They've made an image of God, and now they're worshiping him how they see fit. It says that they are sacrificing to this uh, golden calf and means that are prohibited against the moral law, but also prohibited against the ceremonial laws. We see that they were dancing and singing to it. And when Moses comes down and witnesses this, he takes the Ten Commandments that God had written on the stones and he slams them down and crushes them. And later they will be remade, but Moses is is just infuriated with this people. He he comes down and he melts the golden calf down and he it says that he sprinkles it in their water and he makes the Israelites drink it. Then... Uh, Moses calls out the Levites to to go through and pour judgment out on the Israelites for this, and he has them um, put to death for for doing this. Now, not all the Israelites are put to death, but particular ones um, for this idol worship. Now, this is going to seem harsh for those of us that live in the 21st century, especially since we are looking at it from the lens of a lot of our churches worship God in a similar way, that they worship God by the way that they want to worship God. They don't worship God according to the way that Scripture explicitly says that we should worship God. So we look at this as being a really harsh punishment. Um, But what we see here is that this is actually a merciful act of God's grace that he's only wiping out some of them. Because in previous chapters in Genesis, we have Noah's flood where he wipes out the whole world except for one family. And then we have in Sodom and Gomorrah, he wipes out a whole city except for one family. So here we have God actually being very merciful to the Israelites. We see that there is... uh, a mercy here and not killing all of them and wiping them all out for this act of disobedience. Um, moving along here, we see that the Lord expresses uh, a desire to wipe them out. And Moses appeals to God and says, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham and remember to fulfill that covenant to be to make a promise to keep your promise and he prays for the that God would keep his promise to Abraham that he would be uh, a merciful God that he would be slow to anger that he was abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving their iniquity transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So we see, again, this tension, even in Moses' appeal and God's response, we see this tension between God's justice and his mercy. And that's because when man was created, it was to exhibit God's justice and his mercy because neither was being exhibited or put out on display um, before man was created. 
Uh, it was, does not mean that God was not just and that he was not merciful. It doesn't mean that God, when God created mankind, he became justice and he became merciful, but it's because in creating mankind, he gets to exhibit his justice that has always existed and exhibit his mercy that has also, also uh, existed. Um, from, from this point, God does forgive the Israelites. And then Moses is given the commands on how to construct the tabernacle. This is going to be a, a separate place among God's people. It will actually be placed in the center of the people that the tribes will go out in four different directions and surround um, this tabernacle. But the tabernacle was to be the center place of the Israelites. It was meant to be a portable tent that um, created a holy or separate place for the Israelites to gather and to worship. But it also was for God's presence to dwell with his people. At the end of the book, God's presence fills the tabernacle. And what's really interesting, and, and it's very fitting, because God hasn't issued out the ceremonial laws. He's just expressed how to build a tabernacle so that his presence can be with his people, so that he could dwell with his people. Um, so what's interesting here is that when Moses tries to enter the tabernacle after God's glory descends onto it, um, he is stopped. And, and that's how the book of Exodus ends. Moses is not allowed to enter into God's presence. Now, the book of Leviticus literally leaves off right at the end of Exodus, where God calls out to Moses from the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and this is that's where God's presence dwells, is in the Ark of the Covenant. And God calls out to Moses. So Moses is not in the tabernacle. He is outside of the tabernacle. And we see here that um, God then gives instructions, and the, the book of um, Leviticus is going to go through instructions on how the people can be holy to enter into God's presence, that they would be an acceptable priesthood of people to enter and advocate for God's people, for their sin. So even to, to go into God's presence, uh, I'm sorry, into God's presence to sacrifice an animal, to, to atone for their sins, they have to be made holy before they go into God's presence. So there has to be means for them to cleanse themselves and to wash themselves and for them to set themselves apart from the people before they can even advocate for the people. This is, this is again, this is typological of Christ because Christ is our priest. He is our holy priest. He is the perfect priest. He is our advocate. He is the one who advocates for our atonement and he becomes our atonement before God that he is the perfect priest. He there he is holy. That he doesn't have to become holy. He is holy. And he uh whereas you see all of these rituals that these men have to do to become acceptable into God's presence, Christ is already that. Christ has always been that. He will always be that because Christ is the great I am. In the book of Leviticus, we see the laws um, 
instructing the people on how to be clean through sacrifice, rituals, and behaviors, and in that being reconciled to God. This is all centered around God being merciful to the nation of Israel and making a way for them to be holy because God doesn't have to do this. God doesn't have to have them be in the presence. He can, again, do what he did with the people with Noah and just wipe everybody out. That's what they deserve for their sin. So anytime we are breathing breath, it's because of the mercy of God and that God has given that mercy to everyone. In the, and not that God has given salvation to everybody, but God has given mercy and grace to everyone because after they sin, we all deserve death because that's what was promised to us. In the book of Leviticus, it's set up into seven sections to explicitly give the instructions. The reason that it's set up in seven um, sections, I was reading through this and I read some commentaries on this, and a lot of this is set up for memorization. And so the seven sections um, of the book help with memorizing because the seven sections relate to each other. They kind of mirror one another. The first three sections of the book of Leviticus, the first sections on rituals and then directly for the priesthood and then for purity of the people. Then in the last three sections, it's again about rituals, priesthood, and purity. Um, the rituals here in the first section of the book is about sacrifices and holy days. These are feasts and they're also um, called Sabbaths. So they would be, uh, they could be all different types of lengths. Uh, you can read about them in, at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, but these were, they were considered holy days. These were days that they had to take off in the, um, priesthood section of this first section. We see Aaron and his sons being ordained. We also see a, a very interesting story about how Aaron and his sons are supposed to be held to this um, standard of obeying God's word. It's not necessarily that they're held to a higher standard than the other people, but they have different responsibilities. And in their responsibilities, they are still required to obey God's law in its entirety. Well, one of Aaron's uh, Aaron's sons actually come in and they decide to worship God in a way that God had not instructed them to worship him. And, and it was something that a lot of us, when we read the story, we are a little bit confused because it seems like something that is such a minor detail. Um, God explicitly said that when they light the candles in the Holy of Holies, that they were supposed to use a particular fire. It looks like Aaron's sons decided the scriptures use a term called strange fire. What it, what I think it means is that they just used an outside source of fire, not some type of weird fire, but like they just used a fire that they were not instructed to do. And they tried to worship God by their own way. And I think it's an important reminder that we should only worship God in the way that God prescribes and not by the suggestions of Satan or by the imaginations of man, because God's response to this is, is, is brutal. He takes the fire that they lit those candles with, and he takes that fire and consumes Aaron's sons, and they die instantly. Not only do they die instantly, but Aaron is commanded not to even grieve over his sons dying because of how grotesque their sin was, that they would worship God by their own means and not by the, by the instructions that God had given them to worship him. 
Um, in this, and then again in this section of the priesthood, we see it end with the qualifications to be a priest. Uh, the next session is about purity. So, and again, we're still in this. Um, in the first section, we see there's ritual purities. Um, there's the ceremonial purity that's all that was all centered around making sure that before you entered into the tabernacle to um, present a sacrifice to the priest, so that the priest could sacrifice for you, that you were you had to um, take care to do particular things before you entered into um, that holy place. Uh, one of the restrictions, and, and it goes into great detail, is that you're not supposed to touch anything that w- that resembled death. You weren't allowed to touch dead animals. You weren't allowed to do anything that was symbolic of mortality, anything um, of that nature. So, so we see that there is a, a separate or of a holiness that is is being set apart, so that when you enter in, you are clean. And so like if you touched a dead animal, it wasn't that you were put to death for touching a dead animal. There was that you just had to do certain ceremonial cleanings um, before you could enter into the tabernacle. And so, but everything here has to do with blood or um, bodily excretions and anything along those lines that were considered or types of, of symbolic of death. A lot of it had to do with with blood, um, which symbolizes life. And so when blood is out of the body, it symbolizes death. And so the touching of that um, was symbolic of death and therefore made you unclean to enter into the Holy of Holies. Um, again, there was – in Leviticus, they go through instructions on how to clean yourself so that you could enter into the Holy of Holies. Um in the in the purity section of the last part of um, Leviticus, it talks about um, talking about our moral purity, and this talks about how God's people um, in all times are supposed to care for the poor, how we are supposed to have a high level of sexual integrity and not be like other nations. What's interesting here is in Leviticus that other nations are punished for breaking these sexual moral laws. Um, They're never punished for breaking the ceremonial laws because they weren't given the ceremonial laws. They weren't expected to follow these ceremonial laws outside of Israel. But these moral laws are supposed to be covered by all people groups in all times and places. So we still see here today that uh, actually nowhere else in the Bible does it list out these sexual laws like it does here in Leviticus. So everywhere else in the Bible where it says um, sexual immorality, they're listed here in Leviticus. Um, that next part of of the moral purity is on justice that, that would be uh, included on the judicial law and talking about how that judicial law was supposed to be executed. And in the middle um of the book of Leviticus is this day of atonement. It was a day where it was a feast day. The priest would sacrifice a goat. So on the goat, they would confess all the sins of, of the Israelites and they would sacrifice that goat and they would atone for the people's sins. But then there was a second goat and they would confess all of the sins of Israel on that goat. And then they would remove that goat from the presence of Israel. 
And so that goat was to be kicked out of of Israel and was not supposed to be part of Israel anymore. And it was symbolic of the sins leaving Israel, that Israel was no longer had that sinful nature. Then this Day of Atonement was supposed to be this day of grace being poured out on God's people for all of their sins. All of their sins are covered. And again, this is typological of Christ, that Christ would be our sacrifice and he would remove our sin as far as the East is from the West. That that Christ is that what is being symbol uh, symbolized in the Day of Atonement is being fulfilled in Christ. That Christ actually is the the reality of what the Day of Atonement is all about. The book of Leviticus ends with a warning to Israel that if they are faithful, they will receive blessings, and if they are unfaithful, then they will be punished most severely. What's interesting here, though, is that. It doesn't say that if they are unfaithful, they are no longer Israel, that they are no longer God's people. They will always be God's people because God promised Abraham that they would be his people. So when we look at the the blessings and the severity of the punishments, we're looking at this as a father to his children. We're not looking at this as do this and then you receive salvation. This is you are my people, now live like this. Then that's what we saw in Exodus too. We saw, I saved you and bore you out on eagle's wings. I was your salvation. Now do these things and live. Um, and the um, this book ends with these warnings. The book of Numbers begins with Moses entering into the, the tabernacle. So you see the flow of this where at the beginning of Leviticus, he wasn't allowed to enter, but now after being given the ceremonial laws, he's allowed to enter into the tabernacle. In Numbers, we see a a lot of wandering around in the desert. So we get, they're leaving Mount Sinai, and now they are wandering around in through the desert. Um, Another translation of the, the book of Numbers is in the wilderness. Um. Each location has a part. Uh, so it, they, as they travel through um, the book of Numbers, you're going to see three main locations as they travel through them. And then in between each location will be a time of, of traveling. And then there's there's accounts of how many people there were, the Israelites that were there. And then you're also getting stories in between as they're traveling through. Now, I don't have the time. We're already looking at a a pretty long podcast today. But I don't have time to go through all of the stories of in between uh, in the book of Numbers. But there are a couple that I think stand out and I think that are really interesting. So as they were uh, traveling, the people complained to Moses. And his brother and sister actually condemn Moses And one of their condemnations of Moses and the reasons that they're complaining that they're saying these bad things are happening and I think these bad things are happening is because you Moses married a woman from a different race. She was a Cushite. She is not an Israelite by birth, um, but she married into becoming an Israelite. Um, So, but the Cushites were a tribe from Africa. What's interesting here is that God responds by cursing Moses' sister with a skin disease. And 
I just think it's absolutely hilarious and ironic. But so Moses' wife was from Africa. She probably had really dark skin. When God curses Moses' sister, he curses her, her with a skin disease that causes her skin to become super white, super flaky, and be and, and start to decay. So it's um it was God's way of saying that your acts are horrendous. You're being you're being unloving, you don't love your neighbor. And this is not the way that my people should act. My people shouldn't be racist, that my people don't act like this. My people are different. They are holy people. They are set apart. The rest of the world does these things, but my people do not do these things. And so what's interesting here is that this curse, according to the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws, required that Moses' sister be put outside of Israel, that she with her skin disease was considered unclean and she was now not allowed to live in Israel. So her white flaky decaying skin, that her skin now required her to be excommunicated from the Israelites. Now Moses asked for her to be forgiven and God does forgive her, but he requires her to stay outside of the camp for seven days as after her skin disease has been healed, she still has to remain seven days. Um, and I feel like that was a like a long time out for Miriam for her racist comments. Now, um, right after this, we see that Moses sends out spies and they come close to the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan is the promised land. This is part of the the covenant that God gave with Abraham in it. Remember that covenant was an everlasting covenant with Abraham. He said that this land was going to be with, for your people. But we also know that there was a spiritual sense of that was also referring to heaven too. And for God's people of all places and times will dwell in the land of Canaan. And it's referring to the the resurrection. Um, and we talked about that in, in the patriarchs episode. But here we see that, that God is fulfilling this in a physical sense to the people of Israel in this specific time and place. Uh, Moses sends out 12 spies. Two of the spies return and they say that it is going to be great, that it's wonderful, that it's going to be magnificent, that God will be with them as they conquer Canaan. But 10 of them come back and they say that they're all going to die. They say that the people of Canaanites are, are large people, that they will destroy the Israelites, that, that there is no way that Moses led them out of Egypt and now is going to lead them into their own death, into the land of Canaan. They rally up, these 10 spies rally up the people to stone Moses. God's presence um, becomes known in the tabernacle, and Moses calls out to God to have mercy on his people. God does forgive them, but he sends a plague to take out the people who had who were rebelling against them. He also says that because of the rebellion, they will wander for 40 years until the generation dies out with their their children being able to enter into the promised land. So they are now being restricted because of the rebellion that God will wait until they've died out and then their children will be able to enter. That 
their generation will not be able to see the promised land because they doubted that they lacked faith. So in the promise that was given to, to Abraham. So uh, we also see that Moses at one point in the book of Numbers rebels against God by not trusting him to provide water. Moses actually takes his staff and strikes, God instructed him to strike a rock so that water would come out. And Moses in his anger and frustration strikes it twice. And God says to Moses that even Moses lacked faith. Um, that doesn't mean that these people weren't saved, but it does mean that they sinned against God and there is consequences for our sin, especially in the, there's a temporal sense of consequences for our sin and then there's an eternal consequences for our sin. And we see that the temporal consequences for Moses and the Israelites of that generation was that they were not able to enter into the promised land. Um, at another point, we see this is probably my favorite story. Too, I'm trying to make sure that this podcast doesn't get into too much of my my personal life, and we keep it pretty strictly on just um, boring theology. But um, this is a story I love to tell my children. <laughs> um, there's at this point, there's a point in Numbers where the people complain so much about how it would be better to be in Egypt than to have followed God out of Israel or out of Egypt that God sends snakes to bite them. <laughs> and I just, I, I tell my children that sometimes too. I'm like, you realize that God did it once, He could do it again. And <laughs> then they don't like that story. But uh, the, the Israelites here have. Um, they rebel against God and God sends snakes and he bites them. And as they're suffering from the poison and the snake, um, from the snakes, God gives them a way to um, be redeemed. They, they build a staff. And if they just look and have faith on this, the staff that has a symbolic snake on it, that they will be saved. Again, the story is typological of Christ, because if you just look, if you just look to Christ, you will be saved. If you have your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, you will be saved. This story is so rich in, in sh foreshadowing Christ. Um, it's just, it's so good as we, as we look through this, because we are constantly seeing God being faithful to an unfaithful people, that he is constantly expressing justice and mercy. At the end of this book, Moses prepares the people for them to enter into the promised land. Um, and now, again, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. So we see um, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses addressing the people before they go into the promised land. So in this book, Moses goes over the story of Israel. He's recapping it again these recaps and these um, like the repetition of these stories being told over and over again is for the sake of, of memorization that they were, they're written this way so that it's easy to remember the story and, re and, and not only that, but to remember the important parts of the story that, that really drive home the point of, of what God is telling his people about the nature of God and the nature of man. Um, he recaps the law for them in this. He encourages the people to be faithful. He warns them to not be rebellious. 
And then the book of Deuteronomy concludes with Moses dying and passing on the reins to a man named Joshua. And so then as Moses is is dying, Joshua is now taking charge. And in the next podcast, we the next podcast of the Bible timeline series, we will be getting into Joshua's um, military campaigns in into um, the promised land. We'll begin with with the Israel's Israelites being baptized into the promised land, and then we will talk about their reign through it. And then after Joshua, we'll talk about the judges. Um, uh, and again, in the next podcast that's coming out on Monday is a separate podcast with my wife where we will be answering some questions about the law. Um, if you like this podcast and you want to support it, you can by liking, sharing, and commenting on posts. Um, social media is is a hard place to, to advertise without dollar bills, and I don't have a lot of dollar bills, so I'm heavily reliant on people who are, are sharing the podcast in any way, shape, or form. So some people are snapping pictures of it. Some people are writing reviews on the podcast, on their podcast catcher. Other people are just commenting when I make the post. Um, you can follow my page. I have uh, a separate page for Boring Theology on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, I have a, a, a personal account on Twitter, Michael Esch 5 because <laughs> that's what Twitter gave me. And then... Um, And then always remember, if you have any questions, you can submit those on any of those social media platforms or in the link in the the, um, show notes. Thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless. Oh, thank you.